This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Trescott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak. And this is episode 33. In today's conversation, I bring on founder of Frack Story, Jessie Rutherford, onto the call. And she is so passionate about writing. She created a website that hosts and publishes a whole new medium of writing, and it's Fractured Stories. In order to create anything, especially that's outside the box, you have to really believe in yourself and not let other people people's opinions of how you should navigate it interfere. Something that she really, really speaks about is that we all have so many ideas. And I remember when I first started out, I mean, I thought I was going to be like some love curator and I was going to match people down in Miami. It was going to be called Match to Miami. And I was just manic. And it was good. That mania was good because that mania is what helped me leave the bubble of education. So I was in a doctorate program and I really was chasing after another degree in order to buy myself time because I thought that time would give me the confidence that I could become confident within time, with more time, as well as those extra lessons that recognition would give me the confidence and really the credentials to be able to speak up. So the mania was good. The mania served a purpose because I felt like, God, I just have so much. Like I, it was this burst of revelations and that burst of revelations had me really excited for something that I knew that it was time to become a doctorate dropout. But something that Jesse talks about and that she learned, she will tell you, is that we all have these ideas and, and the important part is really to choose an idea because for anything to become good and enriching and impactful and for you to be able to look back and have it still resonate with you, it takes work. Everything really takes commitment sticking with it. So there's two things in life, you know, the whole idea that you're going to be an overnight success and it's unrealistic. So you have to find something in life that you are willing to do late into the night, late into the night while no one is watching, no one's applauding it. You have got to be able to applaud yourself when no one is applauding yet. So find that thing. Another thing is she talks about is, you know, really time and work and dedication to the craft. That's what kind of builds you up that, you know, we think that we're right now in a place to write our most memorable work. But sometimes it takes time and really growing into ourselves in order to write, do, or approach that project, that partner even, that we respect so much. So it takes time and sticking with something and really dedicating yourself to the most important idea at the time. 
So if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I've thought that there's like this magical, marvelous thing happening where each guest really built off of the other somehow. And, you know, it's like everyone was being just dropped down in front of me. And yes, it's built on itself. And I was kind of laughing to myself when I was listening back to this interview because I was like, oh my gosh, though the stories are not the same, the material in this podcast ties so beautifully into episode 32. So in episode 32, we heard from Milana, still not going to pronounce her last name. She's kind of like Madonna. She is also a writer and healer and big part to her was about the whole not being goal-oriented but being process-oriented. This entire episode is about the process. So in the last episode, in episode 32 that I was just speaking about, there was also this nudge toward creativity, toward not being a spectator but being a creator, to experimenting Well, I couldn't have found a guest that would speak about experimenting so well and with such discipline even than my guest today. Her work is really about experimentation and it's about the devotion to the process. For those of you that aren't writers out there, I still think that this episode is going to resonate with you. I would just tell you that when you hear her talk about writing, replace it with anything that you are working with. And I think it's the same devotion that you have toward writing. I think you can look at it as your relationship with a romantic partner and kind of the time that you need to put in, even on yourself, right? So the time you need to put in with yourself to grow into someone that can write a book that you respect and that other others respect, kind of think about relationships that way. You know, we're so often looking for the one, forgetting that we also have to be the one. It's bizarre how people are so, you know, hell-bent on searching for the one without even realizing that they too have to be the one, which means, damn girl, damn guy, you gotta work on yourself. You gotta get to know yourself. You gotta invest in your own education, educating yourself on yourself. So that's just something to remember that as with our projects, that they take time, they take hours, they take quote unquote failing, you know, setbacks, they take sweat and tears and rejection letters and all that. So do our romantic relationships. And in order to really become again, someone where we respect what we're involved in and other people respect what we've created, there's no difference in romantic relationships in order to be in a relationship where you're respecting the the way that you're approaching love and someone is respecting the way you are loving them back, it takes trial and error and it takes just devotion to purpose and to the process. How about we just get into this episode? If you hear me say devotion one more time, I might have a lawsuit on my hands or might throw themselves out of a building and I don't want that. So let's just get into it and hear from Jessie herself. Thanks so much for listening. So I'd love to have you introduce yourself to my audience. Hi, Chelsea. Thank you for having me. My name is Jesse Rutherford, and I am the author and publisher at Fractory.com, which is a fractured fiction website where I've published three um, nonlinear stories that I've written over the last seven years since I got divorced, actually. Wow. So what does it feel like when you call yourself an author rather than just a writer and author? Well, so I actually became a published author before um, in nonfiction first. And so I'd kind of gone around the block with that. I'd always wanted to be a writer since the time I was a little kid. And I started when I was like four years old. Um, I was already like writing stories using some pictograms that my dad designed for me so that I could tell a story before I could actually like write 
clear words other than my name. So I always considered myself a writer and I became a published writer when I was about 25 or 26 and wrote a nonfiction book with some of my colleagues. And it, it really wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. I was very excited about having published a book. We self-published it and then we self-published another one. Um, and then I did some ghostwriting. And so it kind of was something that happened gradually. My fiction, I won like a few small time awards for, but I never had my fiction. Some of the novels that I wrote, those were never picked up. But I realized that I wasn't going to do it the way everybody else does it. So I continued writing my work the way I wanted to write it. And I'm still the author of it. So that, you know, the title isn't really something I've actually thought much about for a long time. That's interesting because I think so many of us get caught up in the title thinking that's going to give us, you know, pride or satisfaction or, you know, just going to be this huge moment. And then you get a degree or you get the title and nothing really shifts inside of us. What do you think in the creative process for you has kind of caused or been, been the catalyst behind the greatest shift? I guess in your identity is what I mean, because I think that like, you know, when people are called an author or they have a PhD, they think that something's going to shift in their identity. They're going to step into a new identity and it's going to have them feel and show up in a different way. What happened for you that helped you show up in a new way? Wow, Chelsea, there's so many different ways I could go to answer that question. I think there was only one time in my life where I felt a shift like that, really, that I, maybe there's a few, but that I could really feel like that. And it was completely unanticipated. It caught me completely by surprise. And it was right before I graduated college. And I suddenly realized I didn't feel like I would need to be dependent on anybody financially. And I was like a week away from graduating. I was like preparing for graduation. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have a degree. Like I'm going to be self-sufficient. And it just gave me a little bit of confidence that I didn't even realize was missing. But to respond to what you're saying about when people feel like I'm going to get to this place and then it's all going to be different. Like in that movie Willow, and we get to seriously, everything is going to be fine. And, da, 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 and then you get there and it's not. And I had taken a writing workshop in 2004 from Amy Bender, who last I checked was still a professor of creative writing at USC. And she had said like that she teaches a lot of workshops in which people are like, oh my God, I really want to be published. And what's it like to be a published author? Because she's written several fiction books that have been published. And she said, you know, people think that it's going to be this great moment in your life and that you're going to be this published author and everyone's going to love you and it's going to be wonderful. And she's like, I have to tell you like if you're going into this for that reason it's never going to be enough there's no end to how much validation you need and we can say that about everything right oh if I get a PhD everybody's going to respect me oh if I get my book published then I'm going to get all this adoration oh if I become a politician then people are really going to listen to me and I'm going to be this like you know famous public figure or whatever like but that's not where and what she said and which I believe is like that's not where satisfaction comes from it has to come from within and you can only get it yourself so true. It's been the biggest discovery of my life, really. Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. I think that you'll always be chasing. And you're right that, like, right. once you get on that path, it's never enough. It's never enough. And then it leads to disillusionment, right? And this is what the creative process can give us, right? So, a lot of times, I think middle aged people, I'm 40 now, but middle aged people will suddenly like look around and go, Is this all there is? Like, this is it. This is my life. Like my job, my family, my car, which isn't the car that I thought I'd be driving at this point in my life, or I don't have the title I thought I would have, or, you know, whatever. Is this all there is? If you have a creative process, 
there's always something you're looking forward to. You're always like, oh, and then I'm going to do this. And oh, I want to work on that. And gosh, when I finally have time, I'll get to this. But right now I'm working on that. Like, there's always excitement. And that's what keeps you from feeling that kind of empty void that is, I think, characteristic of late 20th and early 21st century ennui. That this is all there is. I don't feel self-fulfilled. I have all of my basic needs met on the Maslow scale, except for that top one where I'm being self-actualized. Yeah, I was going to say like, so it's this process where instead of it being, is this it? It's almost like what's more, maybe that becomes a question in a creative process. I feel like it's a different flip of the question. And it's not like there's an emptiness that you're trying to fill. It's just, what do you think it is? What, what is it exactly? Well, you're so right. So the creative process is something you can never plumb the depths of. And there are a lot of things in life that you can never plumb the depths of. And creativity is one of them. Spirituality is another one. For a lot of people, that exercise is another one, right? There's something you can throw yourself at and challenge yourself in a way that you're never going to stop being challenged because as you do it, you do it better, you grow, you take a step up, and you keep trying. And I think that for a lot of adults, that is kind of recreating in a sense what childhood was like. When early childhood, everything's a challenge, everything's stimulating, your mind is just on fire all the time. And you become a teenager, you're trying to like recreate that. I think that's one of the reasons why teens will drive too fast and use drugs and things like that, because they're trying to recreate that level of stimulation that they were used to as a small child. I've not corroborated that with any kind of evidence. It's just my own observation. Mm -hmm. But then as an adult, I think that's why people get to that like blah stage because they can't sustain that level of stimulation. But you can have it creatively and intellectually and spiritually and athletically and all these other ways by forcing yourself into a situation when you're not completely comfortable and getting better and better at something. Oh, I remember when I was in high school, I remember my creative writing teacher who still teaches um, high school here in San Diego County. Um, his name is Michael Crawford. He had said something like in reviewing someone's story in the class, like I think people think a lot of times when they're first starting out in their stories, like I'm going to work on this idea right now because I have this really, really good idea and I'm not going to work on that now. I'm going to save that for later when I get really good. And he was like, don't do that. Like work on what you think is your best idea because you're never going to run out of ideas and you're going to come up with better ones, the better you get. And that was great advice. Mm. So, and I, and I've seen that in myself, like I followed that advice as well as I could in high school. And then when I became a parent, I had already accumulated this list of all these stories I was going to write when I had time. And I would kind of dabble in them from time to time. Like, oh, I work on that idea. When I became a parent, I was like, I have time for one story at a time. And I'm only going to write what is the most important thing I could be working on. And as that continued, I just chose Fractory. That was the project I felt most passionate about. And there are still tons of other ideas floating around my head, but I'm only working on the one that's most important at a time. Um, I don't tend to have multiple projects going on. I also have learned how to sew my own clothes in the last three years. And with that also, I don't tend to have one more than one project at a time. It's like, this is the most important thing this is what I'm going to work on. Sometimes it's a fail. I scrap it. I throw it away. It's a waste, but I move on. It's one project at a time. For me, that's what works. But it works. And you were kind of instigated into doing this because of parenthood, you're saying? 
I think parenthood is certainly one of the factors that helped me become more like a better prioritizer and only work on the things that were the most important. Divorce also has done that to a certain extent, but oddly, you know, being divorced has given me free time that most other parents don't have. I mean, I have had parents like, I mean, like, how did you have time to build a website? How did you have time, like a full-time job and a single mom to like, you're sewing your own clothes? Like, what? where does that time come from? And there's you know, there's kind of two answers. One is the kind of self-righteous answer, which is like, oh, I don't spend a lot of time watching TV or movies or <laughs> things. This is what I do with my free time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of a self-righteous, you know, kind of a snobby answer. But there's also the fact that I have two nights a week where my kids aren't here and sometime on the weekends. And also I have, you know, my both of my parents are highly creative. And that was what was modeled for me growing up. My ex is creative, like everybody that I've, you know, been really close to in my life has been very, very creative, including my own kids. So it's not uncommon for us to all kind of be doing our thing. I mean, my mom's been the one that taught me how to sew and she's made probably 40 quilts since she started quilting in 2002. I don't know if I've made 40 of anything in my life. (laughs) I'm younger, (laughs) but I mean, no, 2002. I mean, my gosh. So a question that I have is, and I want to ask you after this first question about what I feel like could be the heartbreak of saying goodbye to your kids two nights out of the week or five nights. But first, mm-hmm. I want to really commend you for using, seeing that that time without them could be useful to you, using it in a meaningful way that gave back to yourself. Because I think it's easy to use, you know, I'm a single parent as a reason that you can't do anything for yourself. What was it that made you think, okay, I've got to use this time away for them to actually prioritize me in my own growth? Well, I think there's there's a few things. One is there is a certain amount of selfishness. Um, I think that where I've said, like, I, this is something I am not going to give up. And to a certain extent, even when my kids are here, that, you know, I live in a suburb where people tend to coddle their their children and do a lot more for them than I think is appropriate. And I do feel kind of alone in, in demanding that I have free time with my kids, even from the time they were little, that I wanted my own brain. You know, I didn't want to spend every moment that they were present being like kind of distractedly pulled into whatever they wanted at that moment because it taught them to just run my mind for me. And I didn't want that. I, my mind is my own. It belongs to me. And I want space to think and be quiet and read a book and so on, even when my kids are there. So there's a certain amount of selfishness to it. There's also like this really American Calvinistic work ethic that goes with it that I got from my parents. They were hippies. They lived, you know, on this ranch out in the middle of nowhere. And my mom sewed all of our clothes and she made bread from scratch. And my dad like hunted and we had like a massive garden and we raised pigs and cattle. And it was like the whole kind of ex-urban dream that we had. And it's easy for people to say like, oh, I want to go out in the country and raise chickens and stuff. It's a completely different thing if you really are dependent to a certain extent for your livelihood on ranching. I mean, fixing fences is a lot of work and doing it in the weather is a lot of work. Swapping pigs and 
you know, branding cattle and dressing game and, you know, gutting a fish. It's not easy work. And it's just, it's hard. And my parents did it and they really did it. Like we didn't have a dryer. We didn't have a dishwasher till I was in high school. We didn't have a TV till I was in fifth grade. So what was modeled for me was really hard work. And my mom had grown up on a ranch as well. Um, she had to like buck hay in the middle of the night, stuff like that, like Gosh. super hardcore. So there's a certain amount of American work ethic, right? If you look at people who are like working in startups and things like that, where they're like, we're going to do it. We're going to be innovative. Like we're going to have this new technology and so on. And they like spend all this extra time at work and things like that. I mean, I'm doing it for myself to a certain extent. I'm spending it in my creative time, but I'm still doing work that, you know, it's not spent in kind of a leisure time. And even though consumerism is, you know, a very kind of um, American pastime so is working. So is working like that, right? Like, right. yeah, there is some like this kind of Calvinistic American, like roll up your sleeves and do something that I think that, that I really have in my DNA. Mm. But also something I just, I don't want to like glaze over is the fact that you said in raising your kids, it was really important for you from the beginning to have your own mind. And I have seen parents that the kid does dictate their attention. How did you from an early age with them make it so they had to like kind of leave you alone in a sense? I mean, it had to be done in an age appropriate way. Obviously like little kids, when they're really little, their needs are immediate, like emergency level, like little babies, when they need to eat, they need to eat now. There's no like, oh, you have to wait until I'm done cooking or whatever. Like they're a baby, they just need to eat when they need to eat to a certain extent. But, you know, as they get older, they can be taught to wait their turn and they can be taught that they don't, you know, that their needs don't trump everybody else's needs and their needs don't trump grownups' needs that they can be taught to have manners and be quiet and wait. And you need to be aware of what the appropriate attention span is for each age, right? Like I had a sense that when my daughter was, my older daughter was like two or three, that 20 minutes was about all she could take. But I would say like, you know, I would be patient for when those 20 minutes were up. I knew she was really done. But 20 minutes, is you can ask a little kid to wait 20 minutes. You can't ask them to wait two hours. It's not fair and they can't do it. But you can ask them to wait 20 minutes or you can ask them to go play by themselves. And I think with a lot of older kids in the suburbs or kids who are only children, you know, parents often become the playmates. Mm -hmm. And I think that would have been easier for me if I liked playing. And I, I tell you, I read, I read stories, I sang songs, I gave baths, you know, we baked together. I, you know, took them outside. I clocked thousands of hours at the park, but I just don't like playing. And I, I just don't like it. It's not a grown up activity. It's something that kids do. It's not something that grown ups do. And I just, I avoided it as much as possible just for my own selfish reasons that I didn't like it. That is so great. I really like you owning it. I do. Uh, <laughs> So I have to ask you now, I have so many questions I want to ask you, but you said that you can ask a two to a three-year-old to wait 20 minutes. So this might sound like a far off question, but what do you think of today's dating culture where people can't even wait two minutes to receive a text message back? So, I mean, I dated quite a bit for the first few years after my divorce using um, online apps. I mean, I literally probably read thousands of profiles. I, I actually think slightly the opposite, right? So that like, I, I just read um, Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. Yes. And he has like original, real, like sociological, like legit research in it. It was interesting. And, you know, actually, I think people kind of hold the line at responding too quickly in order to not seem needy. But as was pointed out in the book, it's really kind of silly because we're all like connected to 
the devices or we wouldn't be on the app in the first place, right? Like you're, you people are paying attention to their phones. They totally know that they got a message. They're just kind of like playing it cool. Like I'm busy. I have stuff going on. I, you know, I've got a lot on the ball. <laughs> Right. And we all have to do that to some extent because it's like it doesn't come off well to be needy. It freaks people out when you're like, you know, they send a message after two hours and then you're back to them in 30 seconds. That doesn't come off well. In general, you're saying like people have become more impatient, I think, is what you're maybe alluding to. No, I just think it's amazing that you can ask a two year old to wait. 20 minutes, but people literally like their mind and their emotions spiral down if they wait 20 minutes to receive a text message back. And listen, I'm the most responsive person out there because I feel like Mm -hmm. everyone knows that someone's connected to their phone and I don't want to make someone feel that way. And if I don't respond soon, I probably won't respond at all. So I like to be responsive. And I think there's a difference between being needy and responsive, but I think it's more just kind of like this natural human tendency. You almost have to teach yourself now to not go there in your mind if you're waiting 20 minutes for someone. Yeah, I think anything I could say about that is much better articulated in modern romance. I mean, he just does such a good job of, and I know that may not be like the trendy thing to say because he was accused in the Me Too movement. In terms of all the Me Too accusations, I think that one is probably one that, you know, requires a fair amount of scrutiny before, you know, getting out the torches. She did herself in. With that article. She, I don't even, don't even get me started, but you're right. If there's one accusation that I've heard the most women kind of be like more on his end a little bit, it's with this. Yeah. Yeah. So a big thing that I know just from what I read um, in the mogul feature is that exhaustion was a big part of maybe your early life as a single woman. But I'd love to hear you talk a bit about what led to the exhaustion and how you coped with it and overcame it. I remember I was reading the last lecture by Randy Pausch. I think that's how you say his last name. And he was talking about a friend of his who was in debt and it was really stressing her out. So she was going to yoga class and your meditation or something to relax because the debt was stressing her out so much. And he was like, I think that's all fine and good. But what if you just got a second job on those days that you would be going to meditation class so that you could earn money to pay back your debt? And she was like, oh, duh. And I think that there's a certain amount of that. Like I was really exhausted, partly financially financially because I was having to cope with a lot of heavy financial burden at the beginning when I was still going through the divorce and right after it was final. And so I was exhausted because I was actually, in order to make ends meet, even living in a really crummy apartment, I was having to take on side work in addition to my 40 hour a week job just to make it work and pay back legal fees and things like that. So I was exhausted because I was working full time. I was still trying to get my exercise. I was doing some writing at the time. I hadn't launched a website yet. And I was doing the side work, which, you know, the side work I was doing, like the client that I worked with was a former colleague of mine. And he was like, can you be on a call at this time, which was like the very end of his workday. And I needed to leave my office, get home, get on my personal laptop and like try and like dial into like a meeting when I was you know, hungry for dinner or whatever on the night that I didn't have the kids, then I would have to like actually do the work. And so I was under these deadlines all the time on top of my regular work and starting a new job. And so I was just exhausted, physically exhausted. And this is the time where at the time my kids were like four and seven and they needed the kind of attention that was like, I needed to help them bathe. I needed to help them take off more difficult items of clothing. I needed to just be like more hands-on with their personal physical needs. 
And so I was just exhausted. And I remember one morning, I got up at something like 4.30 in the morning to do this side work before work. And my kids were asleep. And I walked down the hall to my table where my computer was. And I just like fell down on the floor. Like I just was so exhausted. And I remember thinking like, oh, collapse from exhaustion. Like you hear like celebrities doing that when I think like they must have had a nervous breakdown or something. But you know, if you're in public when that happens, or if there are other adults around, then somebody picks you up and makes you a cup of tea or something like that. And in my case, there was nobody there. And I just laid there for like 10 minutes. And I was like, okay, I'm not hurt. I'm just got up and walked to my table and started doing my work. And it just, it was just the way I had to live for a while. Have you heard about Ariana Huffington when she had that moment happen to her? No, I don't think so. I can't recall it exactly, but I know it's something that changed, you know, the course of her career. Now it's kind of become her work is to talk about exhaustion and the need for more balance and sleep. But she, I guess from work exhaustion, just like you're talking about, she ended up falling over and hitting her head. And and it was just, it was a big moment in her, in her life that woke her up to what she was doing. I really think it's why she left the Huffington Post and created this channel called Thrive. Right. But it sounds like for you, it wasn't a revelation. It was just something that you had to get through. And you kind of just was like, okay, I'm not hurt. I got to get back to it. Yeah, it was just a moment where, you know, my body gave out and then I just had to rest for a minute and then get up and keep moving on. Mm. Well, that speaks major to your character. Before like, we get into your whole creative process and everything, I would like to hear about, you know, just for any of the single moms out there that are listening to this or the single dads that have to part from their kids. You know, you said a big part of this experience that was hard is that when you're single, that the form of powerlessness that you have to accept that maybe you didn't realize was there in the first place, that things are outside of your periphery and control. And I would love to hear more about that experience. I mean, obviously, if you listen to the kinds of things I'm saying and the way I grew up, there's a certain amount of perfectionism that came into my life. And I was going to bring that to parenting as well. And I'm sure that had I not been forced into a situation where I wasn't around my kids all the time, I could have been a version of a helicopter parent. I don't know what it would have been like in that other life I could have led. But I think that the fact that I suddenly realized how I didn't have power over my kids has really fundamentally changed how I had to parent and given them, there is like this big silver lining for them because they don't have what everybody else around them has and they can see it and feel it. And I don't mean just material things that we have less money than most of their friends. I mean also that they don't have a parent who's there to do everything for them all the time because both of their parents have to work. And for the most part, they haven't had to be very much in daycare because my ex has been able to handle their after school needs almost completely. So that's been a huge blessing, but they still don't have the level of leisure time because we're both running around trying to manage our own households and there's only one parent at a time. They have a hunger that I think is not what I've seen in a lot of other kids. Like they both are like, this is what I'm going to do when I grow up. And this time I'm going to get there. And that would not have happened if I had been there just like kind of meddling in their every little thing and making sure that every lunch was packed perfectly and making sure that they always had everything they wanted. Like I just couldn't do it. I could not 
do a good job at my job and do a good job as that kind of parent at the same time. And I had to grapple with the fact that it just was outside of my reach. And when I got to that point, I think it was a realization that came on slowly. And there was a lot of grief about not being around them physically all the time, but just realizing that I just didn't have control over their day-to-day lives. I just wasn't influencing their every little thing in a way that has allowed them to blossom into their own people in a way I don't think they would have. I certainly think that they see themselves as something beyond their nuclear family. The two of them are really bonded because they're, the sibling is the person who's been through everything with them. But I don't think they're defined by, I grew up in this house and this is who I am because they have two homes and they have two wow. parents with very different parenting styles. And I think that that gives them freedom to realize who they really are. And that's like a huge silver lining. This has blown my mind. Right? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it's like a great spin on what could be a tragic story, but it is. I love that. But they're not defined by their home. And another big thing is, right, they're traveling together to each home each time, that it's they're bonded forever in that way. They're shifting and learning that process together. That's totally true. Yeah, they are. And I mean, they have spent time apart, like to go to a sleepover or, you know, one of them's in a sport that the other one's not in and one of them has an activity that the other one's not in and so on. So they don't do everything together. But for the most part, when you have two parents who are divorced, they're like, all right, how can we get you kids both taken care of at once? You know, my ex plays taxi a lot more than I do, but he's still like trying to like get the kids as much to his own one schedule as possible. So they, they do a lot together. They really love each other. I do have to break up fights, but I think that they, they get along really well. And both of them come home scandalized when they visit a family where the kids have like this fight. They're just like, oh my God. Wait, what do you mean? They're just shocked by what happens in other homes? Yeah, like, like my sister and I are close and we didn't have really like fist fights growing up. I remember scratching each other a few uh-huh. times and stuff, but I don't remember that we had knockdown drag out fights. And I remember going to the home of some friends who did. Uh-huh. And I remember that they had like a hair pulling, dragging somebody across the floor, smacking, no. kicking fight. And we were just like, oh my God. This <laughs> and my exists. kids had that reaction too. Huh? Yeah, just it's, it's mind blowing when you realize what exists for other people, what's like normal for other people. I had one fight with my twin sister when we were young. And I just remember one of us or both of us like kicking each other down into a bathtub or something, but it was the only (laughs) time that it happened. But it seemed more playful in retrospect than anything uh, too much to be concerned about. So when you were talking about how you can no longer be a perfectionist. And this is like a, a shift that was created from the divorce. And that also for your kids, they've come into this awareness already of what they want to do in life. And they're going to be mm-hmm. this person. I feel like your divorce kind of created that same fire in you. It seems like you're always big on working. But again, from the mogul feature, it sounds like the divorce was a big catalyst for you coming into your own as a creative. Would you say that's accurate? I say that that's definitely part of it. I think that um, there's two things that happen there simultaneously. One is that the divorce kind of catalyzed for me, as you're saying, like, this is what I'm going to do creatively, um, as well as some other experiences, like, you know, just having to prioritize what I wanted to work on. Um, and I remember, like, having lots of ideas of all kinds of things I could be doing and having the person who is my boss now, but at the time was just a, you know, connection. I remember him saying, Jesse, 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 stop. I have all kinds of people come up to me with inventions where they work in an engineering company. I'm going to tell you what I tell them. 
What is the one thing you will stay up late working on that you don't care if you have to do it on the weekends, that you don't care if you stay up late? What is that thing? And work on that. Don't spread yourself out on all these other great ideas because ideas are a dime a dozen and it takes a lot of work to bring something to fruition. And I was like, yep, got it. Like this is, Fractory is like the one thing that I would stay up way too late working on that I would make sacrifices for and pay a lot of money to make it happen and things like that was the one thing. The other thing that happened is that, you know, just frankly, the woman who wrote One True Thing, Anna Quinlan, there was like a PS at the end of that book where they interviewed her about something about her process or where she was in life. And she said like, it just took me to the point where I was in my 30s to have the emotional maturity required to write a book like this. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was part of it. Like I'd been writing my whole life. Like I told you before I could actually write words, I was writing stories with these pictograms that my dad had designed for me and my sister. And I had written a lot of stories. Like I wrote like crazy in high school. I had Mm -hmm. file folders full of stories. I still have a whole cabinet full of stories that I wrote. And I like started our middle school newspaper and I had an advice column through that. And I wrote little stories for it. And like, I just wrote like crazy, but I wrote a lot of just not very good stuff for a really long time. And I wrote a novel when I was like 24 and it really wasn't that good. It's not like I didn't have some kind of talent, but it just takes a really long time and a lot of work and a lot of tried and failed stories to make something good. And I was really proud of the first story I wrote for Fractory, which is called Frit. And the second one called Denouement, I was even prouder of it. But when I wrote The Flower Wars, which is a 40,000 word story, it's pretty much novel length. When I wrote that and I finished it like two or three years ago, I still open it up and I look at it. And I first time in my life, I looked at something I wrote years later and went, yeah, that's what I meant to say. And I feel really proud of it. It's the first story that has a theme that really works. It's the first story that has a subplot that matches thematically, that has a real subplot. I mean, it took me 30 something years to be able to do that. And it just can't be underestimated how much work that is and how much respect it gives me for anybody else who can do it better than me. Mm, So powerful. So powerful. Because you're right, it's easy as a writer to open something up and be like, wow, look at where my mind was at, but feel like it doesn't resonate in the same way. But to be able to pick up still resonates as like you're saying the truth. That's what I meant to write. You bring up that it was a lot of the work, but was there something going on that was special in your life or that maybe you didn't even realize at the time that brought upon that clarity or that, you know, talent, that giftedness? I wish I could say that there was that, oh my God, like such and such happened and then everything. But it's like we were saying before, oh, if I get to this place, I'm, I, then all, everything's going to fall into place for me creatively. And, and that really wasn't what happened. What happened was I just stuck with it. I don't write the way a lot of people advise you to write, which is like every day at five o'clock, rain or shine, I don't care how sick I am, I sit down at my desk, I write. I don't do it that way. I really go in big cycles where I'll, I'll do nothing but write for months and just like spend all day thinking about it. And I can't wait to get home and do it. And then I'll have times where I can't and I just, I only read or I'll just look at design books or right now I'll just sew and I won't be able to write very much. And right now I've been working on a writing project for a year, but I've been gone like, you know, two months at a time without touching it and then do a whole bunch. And just the way my process is. And I think when I look at where I was when I was writing Flower Wars, like I definitely had big changes going on during the year and a half or two years that I worked on that story, big changes going on in my life. They didn't really affect the story that much. 
What was interesting was that I was just in a place where I was in a big writing phase and I there was a low, like about three quarters of the way through the first draft, but that seems to be a pattern with me. And I just kind of went into my subconscious and wrote it and there was enough fertile ground after so many years of plowing and sowing that it worked and it things came together in a way that wasn't totally intentional and defied, you know, planning or outlining. I mean, every time I've ever written an outline in my life for a story, it it just never has worked. The only thing that works is to just sit down and write and work on it and work on it and just get in the zone and let yourself feel that you're in the zone and you're in, you give yourself over to that creative process and you just don't have control over it. And the first time that ever happened to me, I was like 24, 25 years old. I wrote a story I that scared me and I felt like it said something about me I wasn't comfortable with. And I stuck it in a drawer. I almost threw it away. Like I remember I had it in my hand. I was like walking out to the trash with it. Like I just was so uncomfortable about what it said about me and where my head was at. But I ended up keeping it. And it was the first positive reception I ever got from a literary magazine. I got like a, please send us another. This one doesn't work, but we want to see more from Story Quarterly. And I had waited, you know, a long time to submit it because I wasn't comfortable with it. But that's really what the creative process is about. Again, like we were saying with my kids is realizing I don't have control over them. I don't have control over my creative process either. My creative process is something that I engage in, that my subconscious is in charge of, and is frankly can be quite exhausting to the subconscious that it's like running an ultramarathons or something. You need to take your vitamins and you need to do your PT and you need to rest and hydrate and all this stuff. It's not just something you can do without replenishing. And I was like mentally and emotionally exhausted after writing The Flower Wars. Like I became kind of physically ill at one point in writing it because it just was depleting me. And yet that, that wasn't a bad sign. It no, it wasn't at all. But it just was a sign to me of really like what I was really doing mm. on a subconscious level. And it sounds all kind of woo-woo and stuff, but it, it doesn't. But, and I think it wouldn't it wouldn't to other artists, right? But I mean, how many people do do we really come into contact with as creatives? I mean, especially I don't live in a particularly high creative area. I live in San Diego County, North San Diego County, and I know there's got to be other creatives there, but I just I don't run into very many other people who engage like that with the creative process. Sorry, anybody in North County is listening that doesn't think that, but it just isn't, you know, it's not like living in Manhattan or San Francisco or LA or, you know, one of those places that is known for that, where there's a lot of people can identify with it. I live in those places, you know, but I still don't feel like I come into contact with that. And even in my MFA program, I mean, it was more, again, uh, you know, when you said the whole thing about the snobby answers that you don't watch TV, I feel like a lot of the times in an MFA program, the snobby the answer is that I sit down every day and I write. But for me, yeah. I always, it's always been like this burst of writing or that you're you're busy with something else or you're involved in something else and then the writing comes to you. So it, I, I love hearing this from you because it really, I don't know, it's satisfying to me because I think you can end up really questioning yourself, listening to other people's creative process and thinking that has to be your own. Yeah, and that's exactly right, right? So other people's creative process is nothing more than information for you. It does not have to be your own. And and I really struggled with this for a long time um, in between stories and stuff. Like even when, when I had that low in the flower wars and right now also there's a part of me that's like, what are you doing? Why aren't you working on that? Why aren't you working on it? Go work on it. But I just don't. I don't like 
self-flagellate into working on something until I'm ready to do it. And um, there's some writer, and I can't remember who it is right now. It says something like, writing is how we tell ourselves what we think. And I think that's definitely part of it. Like that has to develop over time. You can't just be, I mean, I can't just be like, I'm going to write this story and it's going to be about this. And I mean, it's a game I play with myself where I feel like I kind of know some of the plot elements, but I'm not going to look at them too closely until I get a little farther in it. And, and it's a wonderful thing to be engaged in. And it's something you really cannot do with anybody else as opposed to music or acting where you're in a group of people, you're dependent on that dynamic where, you know, on the other hand, writing and sewing are things that are very, very individual and isolating and I can't really write with somebody else. Like I'm, you can't be like, Hey, I'm going to put a period here. What do you think? Like, it's just, you have to do it by yourself. And as an extrovert, I often wonder like, am I like somehow disingenuous to be both an extrovert and a writer doing this thing that I can't do with anybody else. But um, my friend, Karen, who's also a writer who, who feels the same way. She's like, yeah, I'm an extrovert and I'm a writer. And it's kind of a weird combination. Someone said to me on Sunday, I was out and with her and, you know, I was really talking to these people. It was these great conversations. And she, in the middle of it, kind of said, basically, it, it came across as judgmental. She says it a lot. And I told her this, but she has this vision that I never leave my apartment, that I'm always at my desk, writing, engaged, editing the podcast, all this stuff. And she worries that I don't get out enough. And I go, wait a second, like, I'm not that person anymore. And she was like, and she ended up taking me back. She's just like, it's amazing to think that you spend all this isolated time and then yet you go out and when you're with people, you're able to quickly build meaningful conversations and bond easily with people. But I wasn't always that way again. I think that for a while, the the isolation of the writing, it helped me avoid people when I felt like I was so depressed that I wasn't like myself. And, you know, I had to train myself to go back and introduce myself to the world. And I don't think, Mm -hmm. I think once you've gotten that back, it's it's not insincere or, or you don't have to question the fact that you can be an extrovert and an introvert. You know, I think that it probably fuels the writing more because you have this burst of life in front of others. And then you've gotten that. I think that it sustains you during these isolated times when it's just you in in your mind. Yeah, I really, I really agree with that. And I think there's, this is actually something that my ex used to say is like, there is no formula. I mean, that's what business books and any kind of really how-to books on like how to be successful, how to, you know, that's what they're built on. Like, I'm going to give you a formula and you're going to be able to apply it. You can go ahead and do it. And if it really worked, there wouldn't be any need for more than one of those, right? But there isn't really a formula and there's not a formula for the right creative process or the right way to build a business or market a podcast, or in my case, do something that just doesn't exist. Like I, I needed help you know, creating this website to make it so that you could read this nonlinear fiction. And I had hired a web developer and kind of described what I want to do. And she's like, can you send me an example of another website like this? So I can like, I can have something to like, that's a fair question. And I was like, well, there isn't one. I'm creating something. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. This is something new. This is something different. I'm created something that as far as I know, nothing else like this exists. But that to me is what's more exciting about it. And I've talked to like agents and like a friend of a friend gave me like this unlisted literary agent's number. And she was like, I put in a good word for you, call him, see what he can do for you. And I talked to him and he was like very friendly and everything, but he was just kind of like, yeah, well, let me know when you get a following on Twitter and you get all these other things. And I was like, why would I need you? You know, why would I, like, he wanted me to follow this formula. Like, this is how you get a book published. And I was like, I'm not, 
I'm not trying to get a book published. I just have content. And isn't that what you guys want? <laughs> but uh. there's just no formula for it. There is no formula for success, especially when you're doing something creative that's different. It just, it doesn't exist. Tell me how someone that's listening to this would feel still encouraged when someone especially says, get back to me once you have, people will say there's a formula for getting, you know, traction on Instagram, right? And that will give you the audience that will land you the deal, right? So this guy tells you, you need the following. How do you not get thrown off course by a comment like that? Well, mostly when I hear something like that, I just feel really shitty for a couple of days. Yeah, totally. But it doesn't actually change what I do. And I think that that's actually like a really strengthening thing about my creative process because I consider doing a lot of things that don't work, but I haven't actually done them. I guess prioritizing what's really important still. And, you know, if I spent all my time creating a following on Twitter, I mean, I tried it for a while, but I realized that if I spent all my time trying to write blog posts and trying to write tweets, I mean, there's a million amount of them out there and they're going to be better than mine. That's not what I'm trying to do. If I spent all my time doing that, I wouldn't have the flower wars. And I'm really, really proud of it. But what I would say is, yeah, it might feel shitty to have people say that kind of thing to you. I mean, even though I don't, he wasn't trying to be insulting either. He was quite polite, but it might feel crappy to hear things that aren't useful to your particular situation. But what you have to remember is that the reason that you're doing it is not to get famous and make a lot of money, because that goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. If that's what you want out of this, you're just never going to be satisfied. If you're really enjoying your creative process, like if you look at like Anne Lamott has said that in Bird by Bird, like what writing has given me is like a really better appreciation as a reader. Like that's been the great gift. And I think that's true for me. Like as I've grown as a writer, I've become a more appreciative reader. I've gotten more pleasure out of my reading. I've gotten pickier about my reading for sure and more opinionated about what I read. But I just enjoy books even more than I did as a kid when I read constantly. And, you know, I went to this exhibit at the Norton Simon Museum about a year and a half ago. It was a Picasso exhibit and it was, I think, a lithography exhibit. It was all about how he had like reworked all these pictures. And it was all about his artistic process. And it was such a cool exhibit because it didn't really, I don't think it really came out and said that in the way they advertised it. I just went, oh my God, there's Picasso's at the Norton Simon. I want to go. But it was like, they showed lithography like print by print as he like reworked. And I didn't, I don't have a good technical grasp of how lithography works, but I guess you can like redo the place or like scratch stuff out and reprint it and so on. And so he like took pictures and then reworked them and reworked them. And like mostly what he was doing was taking away and making them more Picasso-like as they went through this process. And it was such a cool thing to see. It was all about his process. And I just felt like I felt like I so identified with that as somebody who's deconstructing a different art form, right? Like, so a hundred years ago with all like, you know, Picasso and O'Keefe and, oh my God, I'm blanking because I'm talking fast. Um, <laughs> the guy who splatters paint. Why can't oh, I think of his oh, name? Pollock. Yeah, Pollock. So Pollock and O'Keefe and Picasso were all about like deconstructing things and Matisse, like taking away that like detail and taking away that structure that people were used to seeing. And I think to some extent, Faulkner started doing that also. But like when I started reading more about O'Keefe and Picasso and Pollock in the last 10 years, I was like, that's what I want to do. I want to break it down in a way that has never been done before. 
because it's new and it's different and nobody's ever done it. And I had people tell me like, well, you shouldn't be messing with this. This is what the Greeks were doing 2000 years ago. Why would you mess with story formula? I'm like, why not? Don't tell me you value innovation as a society. Mm. If you're going to like poo poo somebody trying to do something different. It's so cool to say we value innovation. That's like the end thing to say, but really trying to do something different, no matter how much people say that it's really hard. And I would just encourage anybody who is doing anything creative, no matter how mundane it is, like you're just copying something somebody else has done because you like to paint, just do it. And don't worry about what other people say. Your process belongs to you and it doesn't belong to any self-help book. It doesn't belong to anybody else's process. It's just yours and you get to enjoy it. Mm. You're on a roll. You are on a roll. I don't know. You have a real, I mean, this is pathetically simple words, but you have a real passion. For this and it, and it makes me wonder with all the passion you have for this where does love play a role in your life romantically oh that's yeah that's a nice question so i've been in a relationship with a really nice man for about a year and a half and there's definitely room for that in my life and i think that it's you know a source of great joy for me and he's also a creative and he's a musician and he understands that part of me. And I was telling him recently that it's funny. I've never actually dated a writer. <laughs> I, said, yeah. I think that, you know, my ex is also a professional musician. And I feel like when, when I was talking to my boyfriend recently, I had told him, you know, I feel like it's really important to me that you understand my creative process and that you understand what it takes to be um, a creative and to create new things. I also noticed that I have never dated a writer. And I said, I think the reason why is there must be some part of me that doesn't want that Mm -hmm. because I think the reason why is I don't want anybody telling me how to do it. And I, I just don't, I want it to be mine. I just don't. And I, and I had told him like, you know, I have a really close friend who was my, you know, my closest friend while I was writing the flower wars. He was just completely needling me all the time. Like, Oh, what's it about? What's it? Just tell me one thing. Just one thing. What is this one thing that's in there? Just give me one word. What is it about? And I'm like, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you anything. I didn't, I didn't want anybody's eyebrow raise or, you know, opinion or like, well, what about this? Like, it's mine. And like, I didn't let anybody read it until I was, you know, a second draft that was like, okay, this is pretty much what it's going to be. And I wanted feedback on things that confuse people, right? Like, well, I didn't understand. If I give it to four people to read and they all go, I didn't understand this one thing. I'm like, okay, that's obviously a problem. Right. But, but yeah, there is definitely room in my life for romantic love and I'm quite happy to have it. <laughs> that's so great. I have a few more questions that I've got to ask. I know that you said that with writing, writing has allowed you to ask yourself some of, you know, the greatest questions. So my question is, what is a question that you've asked yourself recently that has surprised you or that you've gotten an answer on? So I I can tell you what I found the flower words meant to me, but I think that it's not, um, it's important that every reader who reads it understands that they can have their own interpretation of it. Because I, like I said before, I didn't plan or intend the theme at all. It's something that came back after I started looking at it and going like, oh my God, is that really what this is about? That's so crazy. And I actually, I think I don't want to say what I think the Flower Wars is about because I just feel like I did a really good job of making that something that is open to interpretation and meant one thing to me and may mean something different to somebody else. But I can tell you what Denouement was about. So Denouement is a story about these four people 
who it's kind of like the real world, but with dead people, they go to this like purgatory. There's these four people who've committed suicide. They go to this purgatory where they're kind of stuck in this little house and they each have a task that they have to complete before they go on to the afterlife and go on to heaven. And and their tasks are all kind of not very well created because they're created by other people who are fulfilling a task, but they're all kind of related to something that they left undone in life. Mm. And and, you know, obviously, when I looked back on it after I had completed writing it, and this is like a two hour read, that story, when I completed it, and I looked back on it, I realized that it was really a story about starting over after tragedy. And I had just, you know, I was going through a very long divorce process and was mostly looking at my new life. And it was totally about, you know, depression. And it was totally about starting new after a death you know, and the death of my family and the death of my marriage and the death of the person I thought I was going to be and being able to find joy and move on. And when I was writing that story, I kind of reacquainted myself with the song Sad Songs by Elton John. And I just played that song over and over and over again during the like year that I worked on that story, because the words, the lyrics of that song was just like, so from the the words of some old writer um, show you that the troubles that we've all been through before, something like that. And I was like, yeah, I'm totally writing this story, speaking about depression and, and also the death of a friend of mine from high school who kind of in some ways became uh, influenced, I should say, one of the characters in the story. Mm, wow. So it was the task that they hadn't finished in this lifetime? Yeah, they had to they had to complete a task they hadn't really completed or address something that they hadn't addressed in life because they were all suicides and they were given something that they had to work on before they were allowed to go on to heaven. Well, that goes really well into my next question that I wanted to ask you, which is what lesson has been the hardest for you to learn? In, in, as a writer or no, going through just the divorce? In life. No, in life. In life, shut up and listen. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like always a really talkative kid. And I think I've made good progress on becoming quieter and listening to other people. But I do catch myself like this. This is like crack being interviewed like this. I don't get to do this very often. I'm usually the person on the other side interviewing people, right? Because I used to freelance like for the IEEE and stuff. So this is, I think, you know, ultimately I need to be able to do something like this and still feel humble while I'm doing it because I'm talking a mile a minute. I'm talking about things that I'm really interested in. And it makes me feel good to have somebody ask these questions. It kind of promotes a certain level of self-centeredness. And I've already mentioned that before. I think part of why I have like drawn the line of I will still have time to myself. I still will own my own mind. There's a certain level of selfishness involved in that. And there's a certain level of selfishness involved in my creative process. And there's a certain level of selfishness involved in me saying that, you know, I want to do things creatively. I want to have my time. I want to have my accomplishments and things like that. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive for those things. And it doesn't mean that it's wrong for me to be creative. It just means that sometimes it's not always coming from the most noble place. Mm, yeah, the most noble place. You know, I think it was a big part of me taking on this role as a, a podcaster and wanting to start really incorporating more voices onto the podcast because I feel mm -hmm. like, you know, like when I have a solo episode, it's blown my mind that I literally am by myself and can fill up an hour talking and no one's around. Like it was just like, what? How does that happen easily? Or I'll listen to myself being interviewed by someone else. And like, you I'll talk a mile a minute. And then this though, I've realized, oh my God, I, my dad heard one of them. He's like, you don't talk a lot. 
And I was like, I think that's like the point. This is about someone else. And I think it's so great to hear you so energized. And then on the flip side, sometimes you have to kind of force yourself to be in a position to find a way to listen. And I think that at least what it's taught me is that I feel really, really energized hearing someone like you. You know, like you just take me off myself and away from myself. And it's really been, and and back to heartbreak, it's really helped me during my own heartbreak just to have Mm -hmm. someone else's energy and thoughtfulness. And, you know, each story is different and each, each person, how they speak is different. It really is a different energy. So I love yours. And well, thank you. And it hasn't been of you to to share all this. It's um, it's very selfish, really, to give me this insight. Thank you. Um, I feel like one of the great things that writing fiction at this level has done for me is that has opened up the door for me to be able to talk to other people. So I used to write features for the IEEE's biomedical engineering magazine, and I really enjoyed interviewing the engineers and scientists and professors that. Uh, it put me in contact with. And I felt like those were just wonderful conversations where I talked to, you know, people, I even got to interview a Nobel Prize winner. And when I started writing fiction, I realized, well, when I started, I'd always been doing it. But when I started writing fiction more as I got divorced, I realized that you can just call people up and tell them you're a writer and ask them to tell you their story and they'd be happy to do it, you know? It's incredible. And um, so yeah. when I was writing The Flower Wars, The Flower Wars is about um, an Aztec warrior who um, who's wounded in action. And I modeled a lot of the military, um, the ancient Aztec military. I did some research on, on ancient Mexico and on the Aztecs. And I also did um, research on the U.S. Marine Corps. And I was like, I have a friend whose husband was, um, he's like a... He said he had some kind of office, but he was an infantry officer in um, the Marine Corps, and he was wounded in action in Fallujah. And I said, hey, can I interview you for my story? I want to ask you, it was in the skirmish called Hell House. I was like, I I read about it online. I want to ask you about it. Do you have time to sit down with me and interview? And I, I have to tell you, Chelsea, I am so lucky to have had that experience in my life that he sat down with me. I went to their house, and I interviewed him for a couple of hours. I think there were two separate occasions and then he reviewed some stuff after I was done. And it was such like, I mean, he cried, I cried. We had to stop for a while because he was crying. And it was just like, he's grown a lot since he was in the military. I mean, it was, he's not the same person that he was then that went out and like, you know, went out as a Marine and was in battle and had an aggressive attitude toward it. And he's completely different now. He's really changed. And he grieved over the actions that he himself took in battle. And it was just the most moving experience. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm, I'm so lucky to have this experience in my life of being able to interview somebody and have them give me their story like this. It was just really cool. And it really, that's the icing. Right. I mean, I think it's I think it's really humbling to have someone yeah. with you and it's just such a fortunate position but I also think it shows that there has to be a talent on your end for making someone feel comfortable to be able to go as deep that they would cry or that you know there's something also about extending someone an invitation just to open up and have it just be about them. Yeah. I mean, people don't get that opportunity very often. And I think that that's a lot of it. You know, somebody asking you to tell a story that matters to you. How often do we get to do that? I mean, we don't all know writers that go, hey, can you tell me about the most important experience of your life in detail for like two hours while I just sit there with my mouth closed and take notes? You oh know? my God. 
that's probably why the writer ends up being amused and, and actually a lot of people's life because maybe they're the ones that ask the most questions or make it feel like it all yeah. means something or could mean something. So a question I have for yeah. you is, what does it mean to you to break upward? What would that look like? I mean, certainly that wasn't the plan. <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we intend to, you know what? I'm going to go through something really hard. I'm going to be a better person when it's over. <laughs> it wasn't the intent at all. It, and it, it's just something that happens after you get miserable enough to decide that you're not going to live like that anymore. <laughs> By the way, yeah. I mean, we're like, in a way, nothing alike because I just feel like you're so fucking intelligent. You know so much. You have, I, it just seems like you're so good for knowledge. I am too, but I could never like quote it all back to you like you have. But there's so many things that you say <laughs> that I'm like, that's exactly what it took for me. Like I'm always like, I'm, I'm such a believer that it takes you becoming completely exhausted and desperate to become anew. Like you just become tired of yourself, tired of the way that you've been living, that there's no other choice really, but to finally choose in a different way. I have a friend who's a psychologist and she always says people don't change until the pain of changing is less than the pain of being the same. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that's basically, that's what happened to me. I mean, I felt like I was right and that I did all the right things and I was mad and, you know, I lived like that for several years. And then finally, I was just so sick of the way my life was feeling from the inside. It doesn't necessarily look that different, I think, on the outside. Maybe my kids can talk about right. but I agree. You know, I totally like to... Honestly, I don't feel like my life really looks that different on the outside. I mean, some people might say it is, but to me, it's not. It's just but because it's so different on the inside, everything looks different for me. Everything feels mm-hmm. different. Right. What are some ingredients for happiness that you would give someone that's a solo person? I think that in today's culture with dating apps and people moving around, we tend to think like, well... I'm going to have a partner and that's going to be my like ticket into having a social life. And I think that when people move far from their support network, whether they are, you know, divorced or have kids or whatever, they tend to think, well, I'm going to move to this new city. I'm going to make all these new friends. And it takes a long time to really make friends, especially if you're not like into the party scene or something, you really have to like be patient and nurture friendships over time. Like maybe sometimes even years of being around people. So I think, it's important to realize that you need to put some time and effort into building a social network that doesn't just revolve around romance. So I actually, at one point, had had somebody who was texting me um, through a dating app, this is several years back, who had said something like, you know, can we go out or whatever? And I I'd said, you know, I think you seem really nice, but it's just not the kind of personality I'm looking for or something mild like that. And, and he said, please, I just moved to this city. I'm really lonely. And I just, would love to have your company for the night or something like not, it wasn't like a, you know, overnight. Yeah. Sexual like, booty call thing. He just was like, I'm lonely. I don't know anybody. And I kind of was like, why you get a girlfriend? Like, I mean, of course there's a certain kind of romantic loneliness, but like you need friends. Like I would say if you're single, like you need to like make friends as well as finding, you know, 
a, a romantic partner, especially if you don't live in a place where you know a lot of people, you need to put some time into starting out with some lame meetup group that you're not interested in, or, you know, whatever, just going to the gym at the same time every day, you see the same people being a class. Or I mean, it, in a way, it seems cheesy and forced to like go join a club. To me, I guess it sometimes seems that way, but you do have to like put some time and effort. It's just, I mean, people that you would ask people a few years ago, they probably would have said that about a dating app. It's the same. Right, right. You know what I'm saying? It's so so true. Yeah, it's so true. But you do have to go out and find ways to meet people because that's how you're going to like make other kinds of friendships. It shouldn't be underestimated that that takes time and effort. Mm. And so I would just put some time into that also. Yes, absolutely. I looked back in retrospect and realized that all you know the relationships, lovers that I had been clinging for all of those years that I spent doing that, what I was longing most for was a friend. Right. And I think in the modern world, I was just talking about this with two of my friends, female that I met after being in master swim for over a year, I was in, you know, they invited me to go cove swimming with them here in the San Diego Cove. And we went out to eat afterwards. And so it's exactly like an example of what I was just saying. It took a year and now we had a social thing that we hung out. And we were talking about how in the modern world, we give our partners like this responsibility of being everything in our life because we don't have um, a church that you go to in a neighborhood you grow up in, and then you stay in when you're an adult and your family all nearby. And so you have like all these other people like fulfilling all these different social needs you have in life. But now we are like taking all of those things away and you still have those needs. And so people like put that all on this one person and they become like, oh, you know, he's my everything. He makes me laugh. He like knows how to cook. It's just not fair to expect one person to play all those roles that were played by an entire community two years ago. And I think that Ansari touches on that in his book also. Like you just, it's not fair to ask one person to do all of that. Mm-hmm. Who's the the woman that has the podcast, Where Should We Begin? But she talks a lot about how, you know, back in the day, you know, it took a village. And now we're asking one mm-hmm. person to be that village. Right, exactly. So last question. Why are you thankful for your heartbreak? Well, if it weren't for that, I don't think I would have the career that I have. I really had to try really hard and um, really kill it. When I entered the full-time workforce, I couldn't keep freelancing anymore. I needed more dependable income. So I, I definitely have more on my resume than I would have had if I didn't have to try so hard. I have really evolved as a person in a way to the point now where after, you know, six, seven years, whatever it's been, where there was a time where I could still see like, well, if I hadn't gotten divorced, then our lives would be like this. But now things like I've evolved to a point where it doesn't even, there's not even any kind of reference point to what my life might've been like Mm. before because I've evolved in completely unexpected ways. And, you know, I wish that my resources were different, you know, so that my kids would have more leisure time and my kids would have a bigger space to live in and, you know, less stress. But also for my kids, I am really grateful for the fact that has made them be people who have goals and dreams and plans and are driven and hungry. I I think that is really the biggest benefit. And they are so wonderful. I mean, like my ex and I now are to the point where we pretty much get along. Like we call each other on the phone and talk about the kids or whatever. And, you know, we both enjoy them very much. And we can celebrate together the people that they're becoming because we're so proud of them. Like they're just amazing. Oh, I love that. I love that. Thank you. 
<laughs> and I think that just a big takeaway right there is that there are points in life where you do look back and you say, if only I had done this differently, look how it could have been. And maybe you're really just there because it, you haven't been surprised enough by where you can take yourself. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's the case. Yeah, that was a really good distinction that you made that I think that I will bring into my coaching practice because it's something that I hear of so much of my clients fresh out of a breakup. They romanticize the past and where mm -hmm. and all that. And I think that they haven't seen themselves uh, do anything yet that could shift the perspective enough to make them, mm -hmm. yeah, just surprised by who they've become. Yeah, absolutely. Where can my audience find you and find your work? Fractory.com, F-R-A-X. T-O-R-Y.com, like fractured story, but with an X. And my sewing is sometimes on Instagram at editor in the wild. Hey, thank you so much. I could learn from you forever, I feel like. Forever. <laughs> thank you very much for having me, Chelsea. It's been great to be on the show. Thank you so much for listening to episode 33 of Thank You Heartbreak with my guest, Jesse Rutherford. Again, she is the author and publisher at fraxstory.com, F-R-A-X-T-O-R-Y.com. It's a fractured fiction website that also includes the story she was talking about, the modern-day Aztec empire. She also designs and sews her own clothes, which you can find at Editor in the Wild on Instagram. Please look in the show notes to read my latest mogul feature that spotlights Jessie herself. It's one of my favorite, favorite features. There's so much wisdom that she talks about, how she grew up and grew into herself, and thanks to her heartbreak, how she adjusted her mindset after her divorce, what her ex taught her, the advice that she would extend to someone else that is looking for their silver lining in a breakup. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea. C-H-E-L-S-E-A at breakupward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D dot com. And if you're interested in one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.